Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. It is not the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is not that. It doesn't do anything magical, okay? What we practice here is different from what some people call the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a re-sacrificing of Christ again and again and again and again. And we know that in Hebrews it says he paid the once and for all sacrifice. Once we are saved, we do not maintain our salvation by sacraments. We don't do that, okay? We are saved. We are secure in Christ. I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every giant will fall The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken in two All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible With you Hello and welcome to the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Pastor Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today studying God's Word. And as we always do, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, Pastor Keith continues with our new series entitled Nuts and Bolts, Taking Nothing for Granted When It Comes to Our Faith. What does the Bible say about ordinances? Are they important? And are they really necessary? The subject of church ordinances has been confusing for some. However, we find absolute clarity in a careful examination of the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 as we hear part one of Pastor Keith's message entitled, The Nuts and Bolts of Baptism and Communion. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study. Father, we thank you that we could all be here today to worship you together as a church family in this meeting house. And Lord, uh, we just pray that you would uh, conform us to the image of your son so that we'd be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. Take your word, Father, and Lord, use it to change our lives so that we can be used by you as a church family and as individuals to change this world one soul at a time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We continue our series entitled Nuts and Bolts. And if you're a first-time or a second-time visitor, this is kind of a strange series. We normally preach verse-by-verse, book-by-book, or passage-by-passage here. Uh, But today we're doing a series of four topical sermons. And so it won't be our normal exposition. And we're dealing with nuts and bolts issues related to the church. And you say, well, nuts and bolts issues. Well, like last week. We dealt with the nuts and bolts of church membership. People, there's a lot of confusion about church membership, and we would assume that everybody gets it. But we've learned, if anything, as, and I've learned in 20 years in business and, and 18 years in uh, ministry, that you can never really take anything for granted. And we illustrated that last week by showing a little, a little video clip on geography. You would assume, well, you know, people understand church membership just like they understand where the Panama Canal is. We found out that not everybody even knows where the Panama Canal is. And you, today we're going to talk about the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
And you're going to say, yeah, yeah, I mean, come on, really, do we need to preach on that? I mean, these things are givens. Everybody understands this, just like everybody understands basic U.S. history. Or do they? Uh, Maestro, if you'd run the video. When was the War of 1812, Kip? <laughs> We're talking with... Debbie. Debbie, where are you from? South, South San Francisco. South San Francisco. What country did we fight in the Revolutionary War? Linda, what do you do? I'm a school teacher at Orange Center Elementary in Fresno, okay. California. When was the Declaration of Independence adopted? Still awake? Yes. <laughs> what is the national anthem of the United States? Of uh, Star Spangled Banner. Very good. Very good. Very good. So I think we see you, you can't take certain things for granted. And as we move into a, an era that is less and less literate, whether it's in reading and writing and arithmetic or history or geography, you can bet we're in a, we're in a time in the church where people are less and less biblically literate. And so we're covering these four sermons, the nuts and bolts issues of the church, just to make certain that we're all singing, as it were, from the same sheet of music, which is the Bible, which is always a good thing. And so today we turn our attention really to 13 questions about the ordinances the nuts and bolts of the ordinances, and it's 13 questions about baptism and communion. And so we're just going to work through this question by question because we don't want to take anything for granted. We, will, we want to make sure that we all understand what, we're, what we understand and where and why and that it's in the Bible and that we don't do what we do just for the sake of tradition or any other reason other than we want to be biblical. And you know, there are lots of people who are confused about the ordinances. There are people who confuse them with something called sacraments. And a sacrament is a rite or a ritual that saves. And in Christianity, we don't see rituals that save. And I know that in some groups, uh, they look at them sort of as things like that. But biblically, biblically, uh, you can't make that case. I was looking up the, def- def- the uh, definition of a sacrament and, and one of the uh, old uh, Catholic catechisms, and it basically said a divine bestowal of salvation in an outwardly perceptible form. Uh, that's uh, Article 4 of the Catechism, paragraphs 1442 to 22 to 42. We don't see it that way. The Bible teaches that by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. You can't do anything to make you more saved or to keep you saved. Salvation wasn't yours to give and it's not yours to forfeit. And so we don't look at them as rituals to save and we don't have seven, we don't have 14 or 15. We have two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. Now, you're probably saying, well, what is an ordinance? That's the first question that we're going to consider. What is an ordinance? An ordinance is a command to be obeyed. Uh, It's an order. Think of a city ordinance, you know, the speed limit is 25, stop, yield. These are things we are commanded to do. And as believers, uh, as as people who take our lead from the Bible, we recognize just two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table or communion or some people call it the breaking of bread. And how do we understand them to be orders? Well, if you look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus Christ gives us a basic order here. He says in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
You see it again here in Luke. And what we're seeing here is this. Yeah, we go make, we go make disciples. But then the, the act, there is a rite. There is a ritual of sorts that it is done then. And that's baptism. We baptize them. We teach them about God. And then they, we have this ritual or this rite or this commencement ceremony, baptism. Okay? And then in Luke twenty two nineteen it says he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. You see it again in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This, this is an order. This is a command. This is an ordinance. These are the ordinances that we recommend, that we recognize, that we practice. How did we derive at these ordinances? Ordinances have three things in common. If you go and read through the New Testament, carefully they were instituted by christ they were taught by the apostles and they were practiced by the early church all right that's how we arrive at this and baptism and the lord's supper are the only ordinances for which such a mark exists these are the only rituals prescribed or commanded by jesus christ and we just saw that he prescribed them and we'll move through the rest of this message today and you'll see that the apostles taught it and that the early church practiced it. Now, that brings us to a third question. Why are ordinances important? What's the big deal? Why are they important to us? And the reason is simply this. They are reenactments of the gospel. They are reminders that Christ came, that he died, that he rose again, and that he's going to return. They, each ordinance in its own way pictures the gospel. It portrays the gospel. They are reenactments of the gospel. Let's talk about baptism. So what is the ordinance of baptism? What is baptism? That's what we're going to talk about right now. And, you know, a lot of times uh, we get baptism wrong. We think it's an end, and it's really a beginning. When you graduated from high school or college, there was a commencement ceremony. You were at the end. You were marking the end of your education and the beginning of the rest of your life. You are marking the beginning of a journey by way of, ex- of analogy. And baptism pictures almost sort of a, a, pub, a rite of initiation. It's a commencement. You have come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you are publicly professing and affirming your allegiance to Christ. It pictures outwardly what has taken place inwardly. You have embraced Christ. You have received salvation, and baptism pictures that. It is a picture of being buried with Christ, right? It talks about in the Colossians and elsewhere in the New Testament, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk with newness of life. So it is a public display or a symbol of an inward event. Baptism doesn't do anything magical. It doesn't wash away sin. It doesn't change you. You don't feel any different other than you're wet when it's over. It might wash off some dust or dirt or grime, maybe a little hair product, maybe some makeup. But other than that, it doesn't do anything. It's just a picture. It is not a means of grace. Grace is received through faith in Christ. It's a gift of God. So who should be baptized? That's question number five. Who should, we be, who should be baptized? What does Jesus teach here? What does Jesus say? What are, what, are, what are the indications that Jesus gives here about baptism? What does he say? And he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So... The Son of God, God the Son, thus saith the Lord. Go therefore and make disciples, tell people about Christ. 
share the gospel, baptizing disciples of Jesus Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go there is the governing verb in here. It's go take action. This is an ordinance. Make disciples. And as they've come to Christ, you baptize them. And after you baptize them, you train them. You teach them about Jesus. If you wanted to put a lot of I's in there, I-Z-E apostrophe S's, evangelize, baptize, catechize, right? What does that tell us? Who do we baptize? We baptize people who have embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's why at this church we practice believer's baptism. Don't miss the sequence there. Tell them about Jesus, baptize them, train them. In all cases in the New Testament, in the Bible, baptism follows conversion. Where do we see that? Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 souls were added to the number that day. Acts 8, 12, and 13, and also 35 and 36. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. Look at uh, uh, Acts eight thirty-five to 38. Philip the evangelist, he keeps showing up here leading people to Christ. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, this is the story of the baptism, the salvation and baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, government official. He commanded the chariot to stop, and he, he said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he baptized him. He baptized him after his belief in Christ. That's who gets baptized, believers. Believers are baptized. Now, today, uh, in some of the more reform circles, uh, you have something where they're trying to repackage infant baptism as household baptism, and they try to find a place in the Bible that says something to the effect that, oh, he and his whole household were baptized. And they said, so therefore, it must be okay to baptize infants. You have to know where infant baptism came from. You know, after the city of Rome fell and the, and the hordes overran Rome, uh, Rome and there was high infant mortality rates and people became less literate, even the clergy became less literate, all kind of old wives' tales came up about babies and stuff. And they were taught, I remember John Huss, who was uh, uh, a saint who was uh, actually martyred years and a uh, long time ago, he had to put down people being taught He had to resist people being taught that fireflies were the unbaptized souls of infants looking for a place to go. And it's in that backdrop that infant baptism came into being. Out of kind of an ignorance, it got, it it was sort of absorbed into the church and things like that. And you had things like limbo, which everybody's embarrassed about today in some circles and rightly so. And, but the bottom line is there is no such thing as infant baptism. It's never found anywhere in the Bible. It's tradition. And some traditions aren't good traditions. And then you find people trying to say, well, it's household baptism. But let's look at that. Let's look at a household baptism in the New Testament. Acts 16, 30 to 35. The Philippian jailer. We know the story. Paul was in jail. He leads this man to Christ. It says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said... 
believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So he's saying, you and your whole household believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He's not saying, if you are saved, your whole household will be saved. No one would make that kind of argument, right? And it says in verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he, and he was baptized at once, he and his all, all his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And they rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. The whole household came to Christ and the whole household was baptized. It's not this guy got saved and everybody in his house was baptized, including Bambinas and Bambinos, okay? That's not, you can't make that case here. And in every case in the New Testament, baptism follows conversion. And so we baptize only believers here. We do not recognize a baptism of an unbeliever, all right? Goes back to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go make disciples, baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and then train them. Can you imagine training an infant? I mean, really? It, and that does come later when they get a little older, but it's not that kind of training, right? So, you know, people in different groups and traditions try to argue this, and I'm not here trying to rain on your parade. I'm just telling you what the Bible clearly, unmistakably indicates. And you may... I mean, I, when I, I was baptized as an infant, I was confirmed at the age of 12. That was the tradition I came out of. And then when I came to Christ, I was baptized as a believer. The Bible teaches believers baptism. You know, we're not falling back into superstition here. We are trying to stay with the Bible. And that's hard sometimes because it militates against what we've become comfortable with in the past. How do we baptize? That's question number six. How do we baptize? What does the Bible indicate? How do we baptize? Again, Philip, the evangelist, leading this man to Christ. What does it say? They both went down into the water and he baptized them. Now, look what happens here. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told the good news about Jesus Christ. And they were going along the road and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and the, he was baptized. He went down into the water and was baptized. Now, let's think through that, all right? This eunuch is a part of a caravan coming from Ethiopia or Cush to Jerusalem and going to head back. Do you think that that caravan traveled without water through the desert, through the Palestinian desert? No. If he had needed to be sprinkled, you just take the water you've got in your canteen. I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. But he said, look, here is water. Boom. There's a body of water. Let's go. What keeps me from being baptized? What's going on here? He's going down into the water so he can be put under the water, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. You can't get away from that. Look at Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Jesus' own baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open for, to him. Now, it doesn't, he's not leaving the water. He's standing there. And the heavens are open. And John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And the crowd heard this loud voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized by immersion. Every instance in the, in the New Testament, there's always much water there. John 3.23, John, John the Baptist was baptizing in Aeon because there was much water there. Why do you need a pile of water? If, you, if any of you have been to Europe and you've seen the old basilicas, you, re you realize that Ambrose baptized Augustine by immersion, right? But what happened is there was a loss of biblical literacy. There was a 
spreading of superstition and people were baptizing babies hoping that that would keep those little fireflies from being lost. And you just want to stay away from that. I mean, that's really, and you can imagine, I mean, ignorance, high infant mortality rates, things like that. But you know what? That's just really not part of what the Bible teaches. So remember, baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Let's talk about the word baptism, baptizo. You ever wonder where that word comes from? When they translated the King James, and you had the, uh, you know, Henry VIII had brought the Church of England out of, out of control of Rome and everything. They had all these traditions and when they were retranslating the Bible into English, they came to this word baptizo, and you know what? They just didn't want to deal with it, so they just tra- transliterated it into an English word. They anglicized it, baptism. If you were to look up bapti- baptizo, it's used in accordance with the sinking of ships in secular Greek literature. It's used in accordance with drownings in secular Greek literature. And in, and in the New Testament, it speaks to people being baptized by immersion. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It shows up 80 times in the New Testament. It always has to do with that. The word sprinkle is rantizo. That's a whole different word. And it's in the Greek language. Baptism meant to be sprinkled. They would have used the word rantizo. It shows up four times in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.13, Hebrews 9.19, Hebrews 9.21, Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 9.13, for it is the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons in the ashes of a heifer. Hebrews 9, 21, in the same way he sprinkled the blood on both the tent and the vessels. Two different words, two different meanings, two different rituals. So number seven, why should we be baptized? Why should we be baptized? What's the big deal? Well, Christ was baptized, right? And as our Messiah and our Savior, he was our substitute and example. Matthew three thirteen through 17, I won't read the whole thing for the interest of time, but Jesus came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was baptized. Why should we be baptized? I'll give you a second reason. Jesus commanded it. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. That's a command. Christ was baptized. He commanded it. He called for us to baptize. His followers, his followers observed it. They practiced baptism. You see that in Acts 2, 41. Acts 2.41, so then those who received his word were baptized. That's why we do it. Christ commanded it. His followers observed it. And what did Jesus say in John 14.15? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he said, baptize. And so we do. We do it. It's a reenactment of the gospel. Christ was buried and Christ rose again. We are buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Question number eight has to deal with communion or the Lord's table. Lots of different names for it. Communion, the Lord's table, the breaking of bread, whether you're a brethren person or a Baptist person or whatever kind of person you are, different names describe the same thing. What is the ordinance of communion? It is a symbol. It is a symbol. It is not. It is not the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is not that. It doesn't do anything magical, okay? What we practice here is different from what some people call the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a re-sacrificing of Christ again and again and again and again. And we know that in Hebrews it says he paid the once and for all sacrifice. Once we are saved, we do not maintain our salvation by sacraments. That is, that's, we don't do that, okay? We are saved. We are secure in Christ.
Pastor Keith Crosby on today's edition of Grace to Live. We are so blessed that you've chosen to spend time with us today studying God's Word. And if you'd like more information on Pastor Keith or Hillside Church, here's how you can connect with us. Our mailing address is 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose, California, 95136. The church office telephone line is area code 408-269-4782. And you can connect with us on our website, which is gracetoliveradio.org. There you can check out archived messages of past sermons and also listen to Pastor Keith's weekly blog. And please remember that the Grace to Live radio program is a listener-supported ministry outreach of Hillside Church if you'd like to partner with us financially. Again, all of these things are available to you on our website, gracetoliveradio.org. Also, I'd like to remind you that Pastor Keith and the staff here at Hillside always look forward to hearing from you. So if you'd like to drop us a note, you can email us here at keith at hillside.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time for Grace to Live. But until then, I'm your host, Kevin Reeves. And on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you. And thanks for listening. Amen.